This week, Evan went from a fresh-faced recruit to a ruthless war machine. And that was before we watched Oliver Stone's Platoon. Welcome back to How Did You Miss This? A show where we watch movies that some of us missed the first time around. I'm Evan Toller-Hickey, and with me as always, Michael Hansen and Chris Shane. And today, we are going to be talking about Oliver Stone's seminal Vietnam War movie, 1986's Platoon. Am I the only one who missed this? I think I might be. Chris? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's you. It's just me. It's just you. I didn't miss this movie. I've seen this movie a whole bunch of times. This is, uh, I don't know, once every few years, like once a decade or, you know, five, six years, whatever it is, kind of rewatch for me. I mean, it's, uh, it's, I don't want to say it's a favorite, but I think it's a really good movie. So I was surprised when you hadn't seen this. Uh, I was like, oh, well, this is maybe uh, another good one that we should get uh, in front of Evan's eyes. Yeah, completely agree. Like this, this is one of those that I watched when it first came out and, and I was old enough. I am old enough that uh, the Vietnam War had a, a resonance, like it actually kind of still um, echoed. So for me, it had that whole thing growing up and it, it really meant something. And it was so much in the all the references we had, like when Rambo came out and it was still like really fresh about uh, being a Vietnam War uh, vet. So, yes, yeah, I've, I've watched this a few times since and I, I'll be really interested in hearing what you think about it. Well, this one weirdly slipped through the cracks for me. Um, I mean, certainly I was too young to see it when uh, when it came out. But I've seen Full Metal Jacket many, many times, and I really love that film. I have seen Apocalypse Now many, many times. And this is kind of the 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 third movie in kind of that holy trinity of Nam movies. And it not unlike in Bruges, I own this on DVD. I have never watched it. I got it thinking, oh man, Platoon, I'm definitely going to watch that and never got around to it. So I feel like there's a sad closet in your house, Evan, that like if we opened it is just going to like bombard us with like old DVDs <laughs> falling on our hands from DVDs. all the movies you never got yeah. to. Yeah, exactly. Perfect mint condition DVDs that were never, yeah, ever be watched. Worth something someday. I just keep telling myself that. Um, yeah. So Oliver Stone, he's a director that uh, a writer and director that has a pretty huge footprint in Hollywood. I really knew him from things like Natural Born Killers and um, The Doors and JFK. I hadn't realized that he had written Midnight Express, which he had also won an Academy Award for, and that he had written uh, Conan the Barbarian and Scarface. Yeah. Totally blew my mind. Yeah. I mean, he's got... um quite a a string of stuff uh through the kind of m- mid early 80s and on cuz he also wrote and directed 
Wall Street right after he did Platoon. Uh, and then he did Born on the Fourth of July not too long after that. So, I mean, he he um, has quite a string of both writing and directing credits. Most of the stuff he was directing was his, his um, stuff that he had written in some way it played a huge part in um and i think i think the the interesting part is you know for him this is uh the the real start of his his launch pad into those movies right he's he's gotten some recognition winning the um academy award for uh midnight express for best uh best adapted screenplay but it's not until um he writes and directs platoon that you know, he really becomes uh, a Hollywood mm. notable. Maybe that he becomes Oliver Stone. Yeah, yeah, exactly. To a pretty amazing run over the next uh, next decade after 1986, because over that decade, I mean, we just listed off a bunch of those. But you know, after Platoon, it's it's uh, Wall Street, Born on the Fourth of July, The Doors, JFK, Natural Born Killers, Nixon, Evita, like. That's that's the next ten years, and a bunch of those movies scoop up or uh, a ton yeah. of nominations at at the Academy Awards. So it's quite a quite a run and, for him. You know, the as you were saying, Chris, it is Oliver Stone's platoon, and it it truly is one of those things that really kind of surprised me when we were doing the research for the show. Was that Oliver Stone himself was in Vietnam? Um, from the age of 19 to 21 uh, and and mm-hmm. had volunteered to go there, not unlike um, the Charlie Sheen character in the movie. That just genuinely kind of blew my mind, the, the level of authenticity that he was bringing to this, I think, is really shines through. Yeah, I, I I mean I think you're bang on, Evan. This is very much a you know pseudo autobiographical uh, movie. He he was writing um, right after he came out of the war. Uh, he wrote an, uh, another movie called Break, uh, which never got produced. But he basically used his experiences in Vietnam to write that. He wound up going into film school, and that's where he then got into. Um, writing Midnight Express, and then he basically used that original script to turn it into Platoon. Uh, the The only reason it wasn't made sooner was he just had this incredible difficulty getting this movie made because he wanted it to be uh, so genuine and authentic to the experiences of what he had lived in Vietnam that basically nobody wanted to see that movie because they're like, it's too dark. It's too real. It's too gritty. It's too sad. It's too much of a bummer. Uh, and this is kind of on the, also on the other side of, I mean, you mentioned, um, apocalypse now, uh, it was also after deer hunter had come out. So people were like, we think this whole Vietnam war movie thing's being covered. We've had those Vietnam war movies. We're good. Uh, and he actually had to basically try three or four times before he could actually get this movie made. He'd essentially, moved on to some degree because he thought it was never going to get made and it only wound up getting picked up because he was making another movie salvador all about um the war in central america and kind of this what he saw as this this slide into another vietnam war that america was headed towards again um that uh hemsdale the company was making uh or or financing uh salvador uh said well 
whatever. Well, this is a pretty good script. We'll do this one too. And so they actually finance both movies back to back. Uh, and he wound up basically living in a jungle for like the better part of a year, uh, first in Mexico. And then he flew off to the Philippines to film uh, platoon at the beginning of 1986. So, I mean, it's, it's a pretty long, arduous path for him to actually get this movie made. And I think the crazy part is he made this movie on a $6 million budget. So if we talk about uh, Stand By Me, which is one of our alumni movies made in the same year as this, uh, that movie where you've got four young kids basically wandering through the woods uh, cost $8 million to make. This was made, this is a war movie, with like a large ensemble explosions and battles and all, all this stuff going on made for 6 million bucks, right? Like to, to put a war drama together for a fraction of the budget, uh, is pretty, pretty shocking. And I think we'll probably spend a fair amount of time talking about, um, how that was done and how that kind of like low budget influenced a large part of what they did. But yeah, shot in early 1986 out by the end of the year and, and just a year, apparently that was pretty miserable living in jungles. So <laughs> I, that's it. After living in the jungle for a year and after trying so hard for so long to get this made, it was super gratifying for him to be nominated for, oh, I don't know, eight Academy Awards and winning like Best Picture and Best Director. Uh, film also picked up Best Film Editing, Best Sound Mixing. So it it was definitely worth it. People, the, the Academy wasn't Vietnam doubt. Uh, this has been uh, one of American Film Institute's top 100 films. It is constantly in top lists, especially of war films, uh, 89% on Rotten Tomatoes. So Michael, after coming back and, and rewatching this film, what, what were your thoughts? How do you feel about it? I think this is an outstanding movie. This is, it has appealed to me at every point in my life. I watched it when it first came out. And like I said, it represented something when I was young and then I watched it with, um, and I mentioned it before, but our, our now 17-year-old uh, son, because I wanted him to see it. So we, we discussed it. And then I, I had a chance to kind of watch it again now with the three of us and really kind of look at it again. And every time I've seen something new, I think it is an incredibly nuanced view of war and what people go through. Uh, and it's got something for everyone. And I, I just, I, I enjoy it every time I watch it. Yeah, I'll, I'll say it's maybe not the... Um most uh, light entertaining watch. I mean, it's a pretty anti-war war movie. There's got a lot of like, this is kind of a sad thing to, uh, in a lot of ways to watch this movie. But I will say like, it still holds up for me after uh, all the years, these years. I think it's also um, one of the things I find interesting about this movie is this is a movie that is about the Vietnam War more than anything else. Whereas some of those other movies that you mentioned, Evan, like, you know, Apocalypse Now or uh, uh, Deer Hunter or whatever, like those are movies that are about something else that take place during the Vietnam mm -hmm. War movie. Whereas this is very strictly or not strictly, but like very intentionally about the war and the experiences of the people who were there in the same way that, you know, um, you know, All Quiet on the Western Front is a story about World War One. And sure, you can draw other war parallels out or other other things that you want to, but like it is definitely a thing that's rooted. In it's the interesting world you say war. that because there, there are two things. One is I'm not sure like this says much about the war other than the day to day experience of the war. It doesn't explain the background of war. It doesn't explain why someone's doing it. Why are they sending people across the world? 
in a good way. Like I think that by focusing on the individuals, it actually makes it a better movie. So it's more about the individual's experience being fighting this war um, more so than the war itself. Like why is it being fought? What are people doing? You know, it doesn't get into that at all, like whatsoever. The second thing is this whole notion of the, um, the, the glorifying the war and making it sort of really cool versus showing the reality. I think they do it really well, but similar to one of his other movies. So you, you mentioned Wall Street. I thought it was the funniest thing I'd heard him uh, uh, say in an interview before was that there were so many people that would come up to him afterwards and say, oh, your movie is why I got into Wall Street. And it's like, no, that that was not. That's not yeah. what I want at all. Which yeah. is a little not bit the same good. here. Yeah. It's like, you know, this is war is not cool yet. You walk away afterwards, especially like, you know, 15 year old me. I was like, wow, that was so cool. So Evan, as uh, as the newcomer to Platoon, what, how did you find it? What was your thoughts after seeing it? This movie is great. It, it is it is a truly excellent piece of art. It, it is well written. It's well executed. Some phenomenal performances in it. It's extraordinarily well directed uh, and edited. And uh, yeah, I, I am I'm thrilled that this movie came up uh, in our in our little podcast to to make me take a look at it. So big thumbs up from me. There you go. Well, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll get into the the meat of this and talk about uh, all the ins and outs that made this movie happen. And welcome back. So we're going to be talking about all the stuff that happens in Platoon. If you haven't seen the movie and you don't want it spoiled, then run away. Uh, Because otherwise, we're going to be getting into the details of this movie. Uh, So... As a recap for all of us about what is this movie about? So this movie follows uh, Chris Taylor. He's a young volunteer who's just arriving in Vietnam and he's joining this platoon that is essentially split between these two sergeants. You've got the uh, ruthless and calculating Sergeant Barnes uh, on the one hand and the more humane and moral Sergeant Elias on the other. Uh, And as he kind of witnesses and participates in this brutal, chaotic conflict. Uh, He struggles with the morality of the war itself and his own actions. Uh, The tension essentially builds up between these two sergeants until eventually they reach a breaking point uh, in this dramatic and tragic climax. So, um, I mean, as a starting point on this, we kind of touched on it up up the top, but I mean, this is a, a, a movie and a story that feels very authentic. And so I don't know if there's certain things that call out for, for each of you here, but like how, how real lived in authentic does this story feel to each of you? Incredibly. Like, I think the, the way that they started, it's so, I love the way that they introduce everything. Like you say, arrive fresh faced, you see the, the meeting, the, the, the people have been there for a while, the, the vets, you see the first experience of just being in the jungle and falling, the ants biting, the water, the constant fatigue. Like it just so quickly establishes like, wow, this is nothing like what they probably would have been told 
uh, from back home when they joined or what they thought that they were going to do. So watching it, I, I just think like it is such a terrific way to within seven minutes establish the the shift in, you know, you walk off that plane and versus the reality on the ground. So for me, it is I, I just love how they portray this thing before a single bullet has been shot. Absolutely, Michael. I, I, I agree 100 percent. And one of the things that that I particularly liked you know, as you say, he comes off the plane, you know, you've got all these fresh face recruits, they're seeing the body bags, they're seeing these grizzled veterans, and there's a whole lot of characters right off the top, and there's a lot happening, but it's all done very close so that you know that there's a lot of people there. You can't really distinguish them off the top beyond sort of like, okay, that's Charlie Sheen. Um, and, and even then, Back when this movie was shot, he was not uh, a big name. So you've got this group of people and then people just start dying. And so it's like, oh, I didn't even I'm not sure I even knew that character's name. And and he's just had his head blown off. And yeah, that seems basically right and right in the worst way, like just very authentic. And I mean, again, not surprising. You've got Stone himself who had served two years in Nam, which again, blows my mind that that such formative years of his life, you know, age 19 to 21, he's there fighting. He had uh, a, a bronze star awarded to him. He got two purple hearts. You know, that's for for being wounded in battle. Um, so, and and I also found out that that he had lived in Vietnam even before the war in South Vietnam, uh, teaching English. So he has this kind of love for the country, and then also this level of knowledge of it from fighting at it. Uh, it's, it's really interesting to see that translated to the screen and to see the character of, of Chris Taylor as basically the avatar for Stone and his experiences throughout the war. The people too feel like they could be real people. Like to your point, Evan, it's, uh, you know, some of them, you don't necessarily, even by the end of the movie, remember some of their names, but you're like, okay, I, I get who these people are, even though I'm only getting them in little snippets. And I think a lot of those, that goes back to, um, Oliver Stone and saying like, I'm trying to reflect the real people who I served there with. Sure. Some of them got, you know, mashed together, but you know, especially when you come down to Barnes and Elias, the two, uh, you know, like big heavyweights in this movie played by, um, Willem Dafoe and Tom Berenger, like those were based on real people, right? Real platoon sergeants that he had. He talked about how, um, Barnes is essentially a, a guy who he served for, uh, you know, he carried his radio and he let, dealt with them firsthand. And he was this kind of ruthless win at all costs kind of character. And so I think there's something interesting when he talks about like the characters and where they came from, because they're rooted in somebody who you aren't just kind of like 
making up in your head, but you've seen do real things in the real world, which for me in some ways fleshes these characters out even more. And you feel like there's more that all of these characters understand about each other because they've been serving for a while and they have these stories and say, you know, you don't always get the full uh, background. But I think for me, that's a big part of it is just knowing that uh, there is so much more behind all of these characters um, than, you know, what we we see or whatever, hear or learn in the movie. Uh, and it definitely plays out that way for but me. But it's interesting you say that because I I think a trope that I usually don't enjoy, like is this whole thing around trying to uh, go into exposition about people. But they, they use this thing in this movie about the uh, letters back to, to grandma that I think works exceedingly well because there's a voiceover where he talks essentially, he has a chance to explain his experience in a way that does not feel like spoon feeding. And it talks about like this whole thing that, you know, the, no one wants to teach the new people how to do things. No one wants mm. to essentially get to know them or help them with anything because they know that the new people are essentially going to die straight away. So in establishing that, it means that the new ones, you don't even need to know. You don't want to know their names. You don't want to know their backgrounds. You don't want to know anything about them. Um, so they, they, I get the point across, I think, very well, where it's like, no, they're just, it's the fat guy, it's this guy, it's that guy. But then over time, you you start to kind of get to know them a little bit better and a little bit better, a little bit better. And I think that that translates super well in this movie in a way that would be very easy to screw up by, by over-explaining everything. I think you're right. And I think it also helps set the tone right off the bat for these two seminal characters of Barnes and Elias, because right from the get-go, you've kind of got this moral conflict between the two where Barnes just needs bodies going out on ambush in the middle of the night. And Elias is saying, well, you can't send the new guys out. Like, that's not fair. They just got here. What are you going to do? And sure enough, that guy who nobody remembers his name gets killed because he's one of the new guys. Uh, And, you know, it's one of the first points where you see Elias and Barnes come into conflict because Elias is saying, well, you know, if you'd given them a chance to actually learn anything, maybe one of these guys wouldn't be dead right now. Right. So I think it's, it's, it not only kind of sets it up as the shock, shocking awakening, but also sets up that, that, um, you know, conflict of ideologies between those two so well, right off the bat. Yeah. I think that that is a really interesting piece of this film is that you do have this sort of moral struggle, like really, the film is a um i mean you could look at it i guess as as a metaphor for for the the struggle for for chris taylor's soul you've got barnes on one side and elias on the other one who is win at all costs and destroy everything that gets in your way. And the other one who is leading with compassion and that sort of push pull that happens throughout the film for Taylor's character. And you get to a point in the end where, where things so much uh, horror has happened. So many sort of, little beautiful moments of friendship question mark. Um, it's certainly band of brotherhood. Um, and you have Taylor lifting out and stating pretty plainly that he wants to take 
all of the what he learned from the destruction and the horror of the war and build something out of it, teach future generations not to make the mistake and uh, to, to make something so that all of this wasted life won't be a waste. And and that makes me go like, oh, is that what is that what Platoon is? Is that really Stone stating his thesis plainly? I was in this horrible, horrible war. I am going to try to make something good out of it. I am going to try to create out of the destruction. Here is what I have done. So in terms of the narrative arc that this story tells, I mean, we go from the fresh faced recruit, you know, getting uh, sent out on ambush on like his first day in, in the jungle, um, living through these horrors and then coming to this kind of like dramatic uh, conclusion at the end. Like, how, how do you feel that the entire arc of this story plays out? Is that an effective storytelling arc for you? I think it's brilliant. I think it is the, um, but what we find out, and again, in, in this non-spoon feeding way, we find out just like everyone else that he actually volunteered to go. And he volunteered because it was driven by this idea that it shouldn't just be the poor kids uh, that have to go. Like we, we should all do it. And so for me, the to see that story bit by bit and what he goes through and his realization of his experience, his fellow um, soldiers. What I mentioned earlier about, it's not about the war itself. Like there's no bigger, broader geopolitical uh, um, commentary in this whatsoever. It's just about these people, the ones, the grunts who fight with each other and then the the leaders or, or lack of leadership. That to me is incredibly satisfying, the, the experience of it. Showing essentially, how do you go from the person who comes off the plane to the person he sees and he has that exchange with the the, the eye contact, the super grizzled, sad-eyed veteran. Like, how do you go from that to the other one? That to me is incredibly satisfying in this. Well, I think also to your point, Michael, he, he I, I have in my notes, you know, when when that moment where we find out that he had actually volunteered to go, I'm like, holy crap. Like he he volunteered for this. And on the surface, him saying that it shouldn't just be the poor kids who fight the wars, but he's also going there for self-knowledge and searching and searching through war for self-knowledge and self-worth to know that his father and grandfather had both served in different wars as well, that, that he is trying to find his place, I think in his family, um, you know, that, that deeper level of, of what kind of man he truly is. And that then really does set him up perfectly to be a foil for that um, push-pull between Barnes and Elias. Um, I think he is trying to figure out what sort of person he is. I mean, just look at the little things. He's not writing to his father or his grandfather. It's not, you know, to prove who I am. The fact that he's writing to his grandmother is kind of like clue number one. The second thing, he's not coming in to kind of show I'm the the biggest, toughest guy uh, in this platoon. Uh, but he's trying to figure out what sort of person am I in life? What 
what what does it mean to be a person growing up and and i think that that is more universal i think that that could appeal to um almost everyone um you know at any stage because you're just kind of figuring out like who who am i in the world where where do i fit in yeah. am i more this or am i more that i agree and and don't get me wrong when i say like trying to figure out what kind of man i am i don't mean you know the the sort of like you know buffed up barnes although he could have gone very much that way and gone the way of of you know confederate flag waving jack daniels drinking machine gun firing uh barnes but he he chooses to be a different a different person well, I think I think that's part of it for me. So I'll just say for me, the village scene is uh, it's a tough watch like that is mm-hmm. a, a tough, tough thing to watch because it is all of these things um, coming into uh, this very, very tight focus of all of these moral dilemmas, which to your point, Evan, before it was just like a group of soldiers who maybe didn't always agree, but now it's coming into this sharp, sharp focus of just the, the level of conflict that exists between everyone there. And here's this group of people that whatever else that they disagree on, uh, they have been fighting together. They've been uh, going through all these dangers together. And here's this crucial point where they feel here's this one place that we've been ordered to go to. They've had the a very um, visible display of, of a brutal killing and then being strung up with one of their their um, uh, grunts, one of their fellow soldiers. And that is kind of like the trigger point. They walk into this village with all of that shared experience, with this recent death and this anger, and it's just like this powder keg that is about to, to uh, be set And off. they even set it up that mm-hmm. way, right? Where they say, like, they 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 didn't even know what was coming kind of thing. Like, oh boy, this rage and anger that's now being built in, up in us, not just from this one very visible killing, but losing some other guys uh, just before that as well. It's now created this kind of uh, uh, a storm that's, you know, just about to hit this this village. And I think that's where the, the interesting part kind of really comes in for me between um i mean barnes and elias as these figureheads because i think a lot of these these characters are having that same struggle as taylor or maybe they've had that struggle and resolved where they lie on both what kind of person they are and where they stand on their beliefs about this war and how it should be fought or how they're going to fight it but it's that moment in the village where the that story for chris taylor comes in and you see this fracture down kind of the middle between these two groups, all of these different folks, all centered around uh, Tom Berenger and uh, Willem Dafoe. And so maybe this is a good point to ask that question. Like, what is this movie without Dafoe oh and Berenger? I mean, nothing like, well, you know what? No, I, I will say that, that their, their performances are so fantastic. They're both so Frickin' good. Um, maybe other actors could have pulled it off, but wow, they just nail it. Berenger is so scary and macho, and looking into his eyes is terrifying. And Willem Dafoe has such kind eyes, and it's so nice to see him not play a villain. And 
play yeah. someone who has a really strong moral compass and he's such a weird looking dude, but is he, his face is so full of character and that moment where it just does a close up of his where he smiles when he sees Berenger come out of the woods being like, oh, yeah, he thinks he's safe. He's got a friend. And, and then it just goes close on his eyes and you can just see the the muscles in his cheeks drop as he realizes that, oh, he's about to be murdered. Oh, oh. I think I think I think that is bang on like the there's what would the movie be without the two characters and and what would the movie be without these particular actors? Because the characters are critical. You need the two characters to represent this and that. And what I particularly really like about it is that they're not, neither of them are, are black and white. Like even the, the no. Tom Berenger character, like you, you really, you understand that he's there to protect his people. He wants to get them through. He wants to do a, a good job. He wants to do certain things. He's driven by some sort of, he, he's got a cost. It's not just about I'm here to kill people. Um, but then also these particular actors couldn't have been better cast because like you say, like the, the acting, particularly the, the, the things that you brought out, just the, without saying a word, just with the facial expressions, the, the change of kind of intensity in the eye, you go, whoa. That it was just like some incredible acting between the two um, in not just how they act with each other, but then also how they act with uh, managing up with the um, lieutenant, how they uh, work with their their uh, peers and their their uh, various kind of like people in the squad, they're just unbelievable. I, I will say too that I think one of, one of the really interesting things for me is when when these two were cast, uh, Oliver Stone basically uh, cast them against type. So to Evan's point, you know, up to this point, Defoe had been a villain, and he wanted to cast him as the good guy, and Berenger had usually been the good guy, and now he's the you know, scarred, ruthless leader of this group. I think the fascinating thing, though, is both of them have these moments where they can have that duality, right? So uh, Barnes has these moments of um, contemplation or or sadness or whatever, you know, when when that one group gets uh, um, killed by the the mine uh, in, in that, like, uh, bunker. He's got this, like, moment of just, like, clearly, like, feeling like, sad disappointed like he's messed up or something and he's just like it's that one moment where chris taylor sees him he's like oh maybe this guy's a little bit human and then later on when he when barnes comes into the bunker with the rest of the group uh and you know he's 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 all over them because he's he's yelling at them and he's yelling at them for smoking joints or whatever and he's saying you know you guys you need to smoke this stuff to escape reality uh, and then immediately takes a giant swig of bourbon or whatever out of uh, out of the bottle and it's like okay you have the same challenges clearly it's just you don't like you don't like the marijuana uh, but I, I i found that in both of them because elias too has these moments where he's this kind caring thoughtful thing but then he has that moment too where he's like all right now i'm gonna go kill a whole bunch of these guys because that's my job right now and i can turn off that humane caring part of me because right now my job is to be the best killing machine I can be. So I'm going to go off on my own to make sure we don't get flanked and wipe out a bunch of guys on my own. And so it's just, I find, you know, neither's entirely the devil or angel sitting on the shoulder. They both kind of have those moments where you see that maybe they both started just like Chris Taylor, uh, you know, in the middle or something and, and found their way to the other, the other extremes. And I think that though, that, uh, 
their acting choices really help play that out for the two of them. Now, um, one of the other things I, I definitely want to talk about about this cast is this is a cast of a whole bunch of newbies. Like there's a bunch of people in this movie who uh, we know, like everybody, everybody knows. Uh, so whether that's Charlie Sheen uh, in one of his first major roles or a whole list of names. So we've got Keith David, Forrest Whit- Whitaker, uh, Kevin Dillon, John C. McGinley, Mark Moses, a bunch of these guys, Johnny Depp, uh, who barely appears in the movie, but he's in the movie, a whole list of people who uh, either you know their names or if you saw them, you'd be like, oh, hey, that guy. And a lot of these folks, this was the launching pad for their movie. And one of the interesting things for me was um, Oliver Stone was very intentional about trying to cast this movie with actors who were the right age uh, for um, the folks he'd been in Vietnam with. Uh, so he has this cast of essentially 19, 20, 21 year olds, just like he was. A number of folks had aged out of kind of being in the running for these roles. So uh, he'd originally wanted to actually cast uh, Emilio Estevez in the role of Chris Taylor. And then Emilio, five years older than Charlie Sheen, kind of aged out of it as it took him 10 years to make this movie. Next thing you know, you've got his little brother. So um, there's a number of other folks who dropped out, too. But I think it's interesting that we went from Emilio Estevez to Charlie Sheen, both sons of Martin Sheen, who is the star of Apocalypse Now. Like, do you think that's an intentional choice that Oliver Stone is making to do this point back to this seminal Vietnam War movie? I would I would love that it had been that calculated. I have a feeling that it was just that uh, the, he was the, the, the right guy eventually for it. Maybe with, maybe with Emilio Estevez. I wonder if that, if that had been very intentional casting because Emilio Estevez also looks more like Martin Sheen. Also $6 million. Yeah. You had to stick to six million dollars. Had to stick to six million dollars. But you know, I also know that that Keanu Reeves had been up for the role before um, before Charlie Sheen ended up taking it. the The funny thing being is, apparently, Keanu ultimately turned it down because um, he he didn't like the the violence. He just didn't want to do the violence. You know, cut to the Matrix. Cut to John Wick's one, two, three, and four. <laughs> yes. To your point, Evan, like there's a, there's a lot of those uh, uh, names of folks who we now would be like, oh, my God, why that guy wasn't in the movie. Um, so folks like uh, Denzel Washington, Nick Nolte, Kevin Costner, Mickey Rourke, like all these folks who at that period were just, uh, you know, starting their their ascent and partly drawn, I think, by the writing. Um, but as he actually nails down these folks who who reflect the people who he had uh, been in Vietnam with, they start. And the first thing he did, which is a kind of recurring theme for a lot of the movies we've talked about, is this boot camp to like really make them understand what this experience is like. Um, and so they basically ship all of these young actors who are in their early days off into the middle of the jungle uh, to live in the jungle for a couple weeks. Uh, I, I heard an interview with Charlie Sheen where he's like, so we got dropped off on the first day. You know, we spend a day learning how to shoot M16s and, you know, how to wear our kit properly or whatever. And we thought buses were coming back for us or something to take us back to the hotel. Nope. No bus. And so they just lived in this boot camp for a few weeks where um, they had Dale Dye, who's uh, 
kind of this recognizable military figure. He's always playing like, uh, you know, Colonel whatever in in the movies, this Southern uh, military leader who is basically like running around with guys in the forest to shoot at them with blanks uh, all through the night, forcing them to do these like 24 hour shifts. And the whole intent for for this boot camp wasn't to. Uh, get them to be buddies, uh, unlike some of the other movies we've seen, like Stand By Me, where the, he just wanted the kid, uh, Rob Reiner wanted the kid actors to be best friends. In this case, Oliver Stone wanted all of them to be exhausted and angry and on edge, just like they were real soldiers that he'd been in the jungle with. Now, I mean, I find that pretty fascinating because all of a sudden, after two weeks out in the jungle, not sleeping more than a few hours a night, being shot at and never having a comfy bed to sleep in, you know, suddenly action let's go we're shooting real scenes like that is quite an experience especially for some of these folks who have never really (laughs) done much acting before yeah i i think that this definitely sounds like the worst version of the director boot camp that we've talked about so far you know where it's sort of like two weeks of theater camp for stand by me or like uh yeah we all rented uh, cottages uh that were close to each other for empire records and we had dinners and smoked weed <laughs> it's like no we got dropped in the jungle uh with packs and were shot at and uh you know and and to your point chris like i've i've read some stories of like Forrest Whitaker having to be like medevaced out after like slashing open his thumb, almost losing it uh, with a with a machete when he was trying to open a coconut and just like yep. bananas, bananas stuff, coconuts or coconut stuff in this particular <laughs> case. Yeah. I, and I think a lot of it goes back to um, I mean, a big chunk of this is is budget, too. Right. I mean, we kind of touched on that early on. They had six million bucks. They filmed this in the Philippines and they it was really, um, you know, like, what can we get away with here? And I think that had a lot of influence on how this this movie uh, was shot. But maybe let's take a quick break here. Uh, and when we come back, we can talk about how that budget impacted the way this movie was shot and winds up looking and sounding. Uh, and we can tell you all about that on the other side. We'll be right back. All right. Welcome back. So uh, we're going to talk about how this movie basically got made on a shoestring. And and I think one of the, the early things we can point at here is the cinematography and how this was shot. So this movie was shot almost entirely handheld. Evan, as an avowed hater of the handheld camera, how did you feel about the way this movie well, was shot? You know what? I am an avowed hater of shaky cam. Very, very much so. But this handheld, I thought, worked extremely effectively. And it was uh, they're creating a sense of, of intimacy and claustrophobia Um just really, really ups the tension. And, and while it was, um, while it was handheld, um, it wasn't like crazy shaky cam, which is the thing that right. really bothers me. The, that, that first shot in in Bruges where there just feels like somebody's just whipping a camera all around. That's the kind of shaky cam that I hate. This handheld was really good, really effective. I'm sure really helped the budget, really helped 
set that use of tension. And then when you have those moments where, you know, the chopper takes to the air, you get those aerials and, and you see the scope of the devastation of things that has happened. It is so powerful in its juxtaposition. So I'm, I, I give big, big, big thumbs up to, to this handheld camera. Not just the, the, the camera, because I agree with you. It's not about the handheld versus not that it's how you use it. And so on that side, you feel like you're actually part of it. You feel like you're, you're there with them and it's really, really effective in how they tell it. I also think, cause I'd, I'd read this thing around, you know, they, they deliberately didn't do things like the massive, you know, later in the eighties, you would see all these action movies with anytime someone fires a gun, it's got like these massive muscle kind of like, you know, flashes and everything's just big and in your face. Here, you don't have that. You don't have the big explosions. You don't have the big, you know, gunfire things. But in a way that actually works because it's more visceral, you feel the shots more, you feel the impact, you feel the action. Um, it, it is more terrifying. It's more um, scary when they sit there and just wait for the enemy to show up. So I actually think that all of these decisions, whether it was budget driven or not, like it actually works in yeah. favor of the, the movie and the experience. That's right. I, I agree entirely. I mean, I think it goes back to recognizing as the starting point that, hey, we don't have much money, so how can we make this work? Well, we don't have the time to set up these elaborate, you know, dolly shots through the jungle where we're going to have to tear half the jungle down and lay tracks and like, OK, great, we'll, we'll do it as a handheld uh, and we'll go from there. To your point, Michael, part of the thing, too, about no muzzle flashes was um, Oliver Stone talked about wanting it to be more realistic to his experience of real combat. Right. You know, real real guns don't have these massive muzzle flashes uh, like they do in in the movies. Uh, so, OK, great, because now we don't need the special effects people who have to come in and make sure that the guns are firing the right way and the right kind of ammunition. And what? OK, we can just fire blanks, and not worry about it. And so I, I think it actually gives that sense of um, a very different sense of these battles than you might have in in other movies where there's less firepower, you know, less artillery, less gunfire, less whatever. And also a lot of this is taking place at a very different um, distance than you're maybe used to in in other movies because you don't see almost any of the enemies uh, in this movie. In fact, the, the only people from like the Vietnamese people that you really see up close are the villagers. Right. Everybody else is kind of these nameless, faceless people at, at, a, at a distance. close to the very end when they do the, the trench warfare. And it is, makes it even more shocking at mm -hmm. that point when when you have this thing where someone jumps up and literally just like dust right on top of you, right on top of you and, and dust the yeah. sort of like the bayonet, bayonet stabbing right in the gut. And that makes it even more shocking because, like you say, up to that point, it's just been I'm firing into the to the to the brush. Uh, I think one of the things that's critical to this movie as well is just the pacing and editing, because uh, it really gives you this this um, tension and release of, you know, these very uh, quick, choppy battle scenes where you feel disoriented, you feel lost in the middle of these battles. I think similar to that feeling of what it's likely to be like for a real person. And then coming back to these more slower paced scenes uh, in, in the bunkers, like for each of you, how, how big a role did that kind of pacing play for you uh, in this movie playing out? I mean, I thought the pacing in this movie was fantastic. And, and to your point, Chris, that, that tension and release 
become so visceral because you are so tense when the platoon is out there getting shot at or finding traps uh, getting blown up by traps and and you know as you said the, 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 there's no muzzle flashes there's no tanks crashing along through the through the the jungle at them um, the the explosions that they encounter when they're not sort of American bombardment are small and devastating and so people yeah. just vaporize right beside you kind of thing and and you're still relatively okay or you know you you take a piece of shrapnel and so when you end up back at base in the in those moments where it's like oh, okay we're off you know these guys are smoking weed in their bunker and these guys are drinking and playing cards in there that sense of like, oh my God, they're, they're, no one's going to snipe at them right now is, is such a relief. And, and it, it really sort of puts you right on side with those soldiers on leave where it's like, oh, finally you can breathe. Okay, what do you do now? You escape. I think that's exactly the point of this movie. It's like, this is not... A movie about a particular battle. It's not a movie about, you know, three days in whatever. It literally is a movie that counts, you know, the 365 days until you get to go home. So it's 365 days that then include a lot of latrine duty and then go on a night a mission and this and that. Like it, the pacing is brilliant because it's not centered around a particular battle. It is you know, he arrives on his tour of duty and then, then he looks forward to when he gets to go home. That's it. And then there are things that happen in between. And it just so happens that it's got this really good pacing in between. It kind of leads up. It's got these magic moments. But everyone's just counting the days uh, that I get to go home. And and that's it. Like, it's not, oh, we you know, we're, we're waiting for this big invasion that we will do for the enemy stronghold. It's like, no, it's just day to day to day to day. And if you do enough of those days, you get to go home. And then it blows my mind again that everyone's counting their 365 and Stone was there for two years. All right. So one of the important things I want to talk about before we we call it here is is just the 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 sound and music in this movie. So for each of you, how critical was the way that this movie sounded in terms of driving the overall uh, narrative and emotional sense of what was going well, on? Well, this is one of those things where I might take a little bit of a backseat because um, sound design is often lost on me a little bit because uh, of a hearing deficit that I have being deaf in my right ear. So, and, But I will say in terms of the music, it was one of the the one times where I was like, oh, this is where the film is maybe a little bit on on the nose. Um, you know, the... the uh, you know, adagio for strings uh, in those, you know, the big, you know, combat death scenes, the the uh, Merle Haggard song, um, you know, playing where the the troops are drinking beer and and, uh, you know, the I don't smoke marijuana. Exactly. Yeah, that one. Yeah. I think 
like right away with the guys smoking weed, listening to uh, uh, Jefferson Airplane's White Rabbit. So yeah. it's like it's really like that's where I was like, oh, OK, like they are not being subtle here. But uh, mm. I, you know what? I, I mean, I who am I to say that it doesn't work because it works super effectively. It's just very on the nose. But th- this is where it would be so interesting to to be at the table at the time to kind of know how much of this was like the um, the Spielberg Jaws thing. How much of this was the the shark didn't work, and therefore we didn't see enough of it. And in the end, it it was even better. Versus no, it was a deliberate decision just to use like the the two songs and and whatever. So just listening to it, I think that the the what you mentioned around like the music with the strings, it's incredibly powerful because it just, it's such a contrast to what's going on at the time. Now, was it because they could only afford one song? Was it because they only had, who knows, right? But for me as a viewer, I thought that was very powerful. I also think that they made really good use of a lot of the, just the, the silence. They're in the jungle. There's a lot of this ambient sound and they're just waiting. They're just like, nothing is going on. They don't know what the heck is happening. And then suddenly something um, happens very quickly. And I thought that was very, very good use of sound. Like the, the contrast between that, just the endless waiting around what's going to happen. And then suddenly wow, a lot of activity happening. So so for me, it was very well done. Um, but but again, how much of that was conscious decision versus, yeah, we have like a dollar fifty to spend on sound. Where, where do you want to spend it on next? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the adagio for strings, like the main main theme for this movie, um, for me is pretty impactful. Especially, you know, when you go to that scene where you know they realize Elias has been left behind after Barnes has said, "Oh, he's dead. I saw his body. Let's go." Uh, and then you see him running through this field, trying to escape, trying to get back, and and like you don't have a lot of special effects. You see him being shot, but there's no like blood explosions, you know, blood packs going off, right? Like he's just, I think, uh, you know, making those movements of being shot. And it's for me, having seen this movie so many times, still when that music comes into that scene, I get a little choked up. I'm like, Oh God, this is terrible. This is so upsetting. Um, Just as that music comes in. But I think, I think becoming more aware of the sound design in, in each time i've watched this you know to evan's point um this is a movie that won an academy award for its sound design because um the use of panning on the sound effects you know bomb uh mortars or whatever going off on different sides gunfire going off on different sides helicopters uh being panned overhead so that they sound as if they're coming from somewhere other than um you know all around you it's actually this directional sense helps i feel really lend to that sense of um disorientation in some of those battles that some of the the editing and camera work and things that we've talked about as well. So I just found, you know, it may have all been done on a budget, but it all felt very intentional. And, and so much of this movie is that like, well, sure, we, ha- we don't have a lot of stuff available to us, but what are the choices that we're going to make that are all going to line up with each other? And I think that's where a lot of these things have come together really well, right? That how it was shot, handheld gives you that sense of claustrophobia, how it's edited to create disorientation, how the sound helps create some of that disorientation as well, or that silence in those more calm moments really ties all of those other parts together for me, um, which maybe then brings us to 
one question I did have about the sound. Uh, were the voiceovers effective for each of you? Well, I think Michael said earlier that they were incredibly effective for him. Um, I found that they worked quite well. I, I'm usually not a fan of that sort of like letter home kind of voiceover uh, sort of thing, but there was no one that that Taylor really could have spoken to in that way to give us that um, sort of depth uh, and, and view into into his situation and into his mind and and headspace at the time, and that is so critical to the film. So I, I'm going to say that that it's actually like really effective. So there's a whole lot of things in this film that normally I don't like the handheld and the voiceover, you know, but, but it all works really well for me in this film. It's like, Oh, this is it done. Well, Oh my God. I'm so glad it can be done. I I, I agree. Like, that's why I said earlier to say I, I normally don't like when you do like all this exposition to say, oh, this is how the entire world works. But this mechanism in this case works so well to explain this thing around the newbies with this, with that. Like the, the scene when they're walking up to this village and it kind of says like, you know, on that day we, we loved uh, um, uh, Sergeant Barnes because he was there for us. Like he was our yeah. captain Ahab and, and we like that. It means something the way that he does the, the voiceover. So for me, it actually really, really works because I can't imagine otherwise you would have two characters talk to each other and say, Oh, that, uh, that Sergeant Barnes, he really is uh, such and such. It's, it just wouldn't work. But here it's got like this calmness and you get like everything that you need to know in a small uh, sound bite, and for me, it really works. And then it disappears for a little bit, and uh, yeah, and and they actually call it out, where it's like, "Hey, Taylor, you haven't been uh, writing those, le- yeah, those letters." It's like, oh, and at that point, I hadn't even realized that the voiceover had disappeared. I was so invested, and it's like, oh my gosh, like, oh, that's so interesting that you're calling that out too. So that. You know, don't don't you have anybody to write? It's like, yeah, I'm not doing it right now. Yeah, I I, I definitely hear you there, though. Like, I I think there's um, definitely a connectivity that happens throughout the movie for me that really worked. I didn't love the last one, but yeah, what are you gonna do? So before we go, maybe we just touch on some of the questions that we had after watching this movie. So one of the questions I had is if you had to pick two characters. Uh, one you would want to be stuck in a foxhole with, the other you would never want to be stuck in a foxhole with. Are there any characters in this movie who stand out? Ooh, that's a really good question, uh, especially because like names have sort of disappeared for me. Uh, I don't think that I would want to be stuck in a foxhole with uh, Bunny, Kevin Dillon's character, uh, because he is... Uh, becoming a terrifying sociopath and the the black mirror version of charlie sheen uh in, in as as chris taylor um so so i'm gonna say uh yeah i don't want to be uh with with bunny in a foxhole um 
also, I never want to be in a foxhole. Um, so I think that that's the other thing. Um, I don't know in terms of like the uh, the person I'd want to be in the foxhole with. Uh, Elias, maybe, or um, uh, Lerner, played by Johnny Depp, not because I want to be in a foxhole with Johnny Depp, but because he was the guy who spoke Vietnamese. Could be handy. Could be handy. Yeah. So for me, I, I think they're, they're the ones I would not want to be, and I actually disagree with you, because in a foxhole, you would want someone, potentially, who is a little bit, you know... Because at least they will be there to kind of help to fend off the enemy. The people I would not want to be in a foxhole with would be uh, the junior character. Right. Who, Who's just trying to get out of everything. Right. And then also O'Neill, who ended up uh, hiding underneath uh, the the dead bodies just to like not be discovered. And then said, oh, they abandoned me at the end, man. Like They were just like, oh. I was here. So I, I would not want to be with those if it came down to surviving the ones that I would, it was actually really funny because I, I wrote down this thing around the, the, the Taylor character towards the end. He was more inspirational in a way than some of the others because his, uh, he was like, we, we, I'm going to stay here. I'm going to do this. And he actually convinced his, um, fellow uh, soldier to kind of do it with him. So with him being there and being like, no, we're going to stay here. We have no option. That, it's the sort of person I would want to be with because it's just someone who's like, okay, fine. We're in this together. So like that, that would be my choice. Uh, yeah. You guys both had answers that I, I had. So that's that, that I'm a hundred percent there with you. Um, out of curiosity, I mean, we did this for vertigo, uh, directors putting themselves in their own movies. Did you guys catch uh, Oliver Stone's little cameo appearance in this yeah, one? Man, I, I, I was watching along and then suddenly there's a guy in the tent being like being some kind of sergeant. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Is that, is that Oliver Stone? Like, is is he about to get blown up? And uh, is, is that right? Yeah, because I thought I noticed him as someone when right towards the end when they were all assaulting, and he was out on the the middle of a field saying uh, whatever, like you know, uh, hey, stupid, where are you going? And that was him, not in a tent, but out on a open ground. No, he's. He was in the bunker when, uh, like, in the middle of the attack, when they like are now through the perimeter, and there's a the, the, the guy who like jumps into the uh, jumps into the bunker. Yeah, he's the company uh, or the platoon commander, or company commander, whatever it is, who's who's in the bunker, calling out orders and whatever on the phone, and then the guy runs in and and kaboom. But yeah, yeah, it's it's one of those fun moments where it's like, hey, we need uh, we need a couple extra guys. Speaking of which, just an amusing thing to me, Dale Die, who is their their uh, military consultant and and plays the you know commanding officer who who has a few bits in this movie, uh, to fill a bunch of those extra roles, uh, apparently appeared in like four or five different ways in this movie ranging from the uh, commander of, of the crew there he was not only uh, the voices on the radio but he also appeared a number of times uh, in body bags just because they needed somebody to jump in a body bag when they needed something to carry around so he'd just be like okay I'll jump in there sure I, I let's mean, go those body bags did look weighty like they, they looked like there were bodies inside of them. They were one Dale die heavy. <laughs> I hope that the, that is now a unit of weight. Like it's just, you know, they, yeah. How many is that? That's it's three Dales. Okay. So, um, for me, 
this comes off as a, a very clearly, you know, anti-war, anti-Vietnam movie. But I'm curious for each of you, like, is that what each of you picked up that this movie and Oliver Stone, I guess, specifically had to say about all of this? I I agree with you entirely that it is an anti-war film. But what I think is really interesting is that it is not an anti-soldier film. And I think that not at all. Yeah, that we start getting I I feel like we've we've been getting that nuance more and more just in life. Uh, You know, I'm you know, I'm against the war in fill in the blank, but, you know, I support our troops kind of thing. Um, So that that this really kind of nails down that idea of like this is anti-war very much an anti-war film but i mean it even is dedicated to the to the soldiers who who fought and died in in vietnam at the very end and you know it's that 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 last sort of monologue that that uh that Taylor has the, that last sort of letter and talking about um, moving, moving forward from this. And the, the thing that he needs to carry out of the war is to create something is to make sure that um, he teaches future generations so that they don't do this. And very, very sort of clear thesis statement of what Oliver Stone seems to be doing with this film. Um, you know, really trying to show that that Taylor or Stone has um, been shaped by this experience, where where they have been through the worst of stuff and have come out to try to rise above it. They've they've had Barnes and Elias as their sort of you know for for kind of lack of a better term, like the, the, the devil and angel on their shoulders and that battle for, uh, their own morality and they have transcended and they've landed more on the Elias side, but, you know, have not left with their, with, with their hands on bloody, they have murdered Barnes and brought the retribution to Barnes, uh, acting as the sort of judge, jury, and executioner for his murder of Elias. And, and maybe I, maybe it all comes down to is that, um, it's not that war is hell. It's that war is purgatory, the worst, worst kind of purgatory. And that ultimately Taylor has been able to just squeak out and and get out and sort of rise to a better place, which is not there. And there's a lot of people who are going to be going to hell or stuck stuck in hell. Okay, so I, I look at it a little bit differently. I think what's interesting about this is that I don't think that this is a commentary about again earlier because it's not i mentioned it's not about like the geopolitical thing around a war this is not about the war it's not about why did we go to war what are we trying to achieve this is about what happens to people who are in a conflict 
they're not no one is talking about the right and wrong of the thing like that's not it, it's much more about the individual people and their leaders so you have good leaders you have bad leaders you have uh, people who uh, side with each other and work as a band of brothers versus not and that's it. So when you kind of show the lieutenant trying to in, in, ingratiate himself with the, the 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 troops and failing, and you have the captain later who's doing the sacrifice, you have the individual decisions of people fighting with each other. But I'm not sure that this movie is about a comment about war. Maybe instead around war puts people in these crazy situations, and you have to figure out again, like the sort of person that you are, right? And and maybe that's it. So I'm not sure that it's anti-war, pro-war. It's just a commentary of the insanity that, you know, people get thrown into um, through war. Uh, and they even say something about that, like one of the voiceovers, um, hell is the impossibility of reason. And he says that in his, you know, letter to, to, to his grandma, like, it's just that to say that, you know, that all these old rules don't apply here anymore. Like now you're in this new place, but he's there for 365 days. Like that's his deal. So now he has to survive. End of story. Yeah. I, I think it's an interesting thing. I, th I mean, I think there's a few things you can draw out. And to, to Evan's point, I definitely think that this is uh, not anti-soldier in the least. And I think even for me in a lot of ways, like, you know, Barnes is supposed to be the the devil, sure, on, on his shoulder. But in a lot of ways, even Barnes, you understand. Uh, and to a point, I'll say to a point, some of the stuff he does you understand, right? He's trying to protect people. He's trying to achieve the mission. And in a lot of ways, he's the only person holding this group together because the leaders are kind of, you know, out to lunch, don't really understand what's happening. And, you know, he's just trying to achieve this mission. And in some ways he's, he's, um, being sucked into this vortex of, well, I have to either make these terrible choices to do it this way, or we're going to lose. And then we're all going to get killed and wiped out. And like, you can, you can understand some of the logic. And in some ways you're like, well, you can see how you could respect this guy up to a point. Right. And then it just goes over that line, which I think drives that wedge in. But I think for me, it's that, that interesting thing of recognizing that it's, it's this situation that's putting so many people into this position of having to, you know, make these terrible choices and in some cases do these terrible things, which, you know, if they were just back home hanging out, they never would have had to have even been confronted with. And you wouldn't wind up with the, you know, Barneses and Bunnies and whatever uh, who have kind of sunk into this quagmire of, of awfulness. And, you know, I don't think those, fo those folks were ever getting out of it. And once they've kind of reached a certain level of, of yuckiness. Uh, I, I think maybe one of the questions then too, is just how do you feel this movie is aged compared to other, um, war films? Like it was on the AFI's list and it's frequently up there on the, um, you know, top war movies, uh, ever kind of, of list that you see. Like, how do you think this compares to some of the other war films out there? And I, I think it's, I, th I think it's, a solid contender for one of the best. I think that to Michael's point, because they're not talking about the geopolitics of it all, that it really is a soldier's eye view of the horror and terror and tension and release uh, and just the, the, the wearing down day to day of these people. 
and that that sort of um maintains kind of a a, a timelessness um and i i just i think that this is this is a great this is a great film this is an extraordinary war film if that's you know if if we're going to put those distinctions on it yes i think partly because of that like the, the the themes are universal because they avoid talking about something that would have been specific to a period of time and opinions that people had at that time. And then the second thing is maybe it was because of budgetary reasons or, or whatever the case was, but they didn't do anything that now looks aged because they did it so mm-hmm. poorly. Um, everything was so raw that, you know, look at it now and you go, well, that's exactly how I wish a contemporary movie maker would have made uh, the the shots and the effects, uh, so so I think it's aged incredibly well. Like this is something that you can pick up uh, time and time again, and and still feel like wow, this is a very relevant uh, commentary about that period in time. Well, I couldn't agree with you both more. I think this movie has absolutely held up, uh, and you know it's one that I'll be excited to revisit again in the next you know five or ten years, like I've kind of been doing for the last little while. Eventually, it'll come up again, and I'll be happy to watch it when I do. Um, and I think that's probably a good place to call it. So that's what we thought about Platoon, uh, and we'd love to know what you thought about this movie. Uh, you can always find us on Twitter at How Did You Miss This? That's H D Y M T underscore Pod, uh, and while you're there, do us a favor. Take a look at some of the movies that we're planning on watching soon and send us some questions or thoughts uh, that you might want us to cover uh, when we talk about some of those movies. And while you're out there, do us a favor. Take a second, rate, review, and subscribe, uh, whether that's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you happen to be listening. And we'll be back with you next week when we're going to be watching Enter the Dragon. We're going to be seeing if it still kicks ass or whether it's a movie that should have stayed missed. Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you then. 